Well, good morning to all of you. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mike Griffiths, and you may remember that my wife and I served uh, most of our adult lives in pioneer cross-cultural church planning in two different unreached language group contexts. So first we served in Venezuela. We opened a new church planning work amongst the people group called the Yanoma. And by God's grace, there are churches that exist there today. And then we transitioned to Papua New Guinea and served with another unreached ethnic group called the Ata. Learned two languages there, and by God's grace, there are many churches there today. And I had the unique privilege of serving as a pastor elder, leading and teaching in those unreached churches prior. And then a privilege of a season serving on staff at Denton Bible Church, and also served two and a half years in equipping cross-cultural church planners in Mexico at Radius. And then in the last 12 years, concurrently with a lot of that other activity, I've been working as a leader in a church planning organization that supports workers in difficult contexts around the world who are working where governments and religious systems oppose their presence. And so with that backdrop in mind, I tend to bring a, a unique flair. In fact, I grew up, as I'll mention, in these kinds of environments, and so that creates a certain kind of way of thinking for me that may not exactly jive in every way with yours, but nonetheless, I trust that some of the resonance will cross over this morning as we share and talk, think from Psalm 24, this wonderful psalm, this marvelous uh, psalm that describes, that highlights the Lord's majestic kingship. And so follow along with me as I read that. If you're looking at the Red Pew Bibles there, you'll find that on page 458, those red Bibles in front of you. Yeah, psalm 24, let's read that psalm together this morning, and then we'll pray. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Father, would you please lift our eyes and humble our hearts today that we might glimpse and adore you in that majestic kingship that you represent to us, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said on another occasion and just mentioned, I grew up in an unusual context. I grew up in the Amazon Basin in the cultural and language environment of the Yanomamu people. My parents and grandparents translated 
in fact, the scriptures into that language. And the anthropologists have, have referred to the Yanomami people as Stone Age hunters and gatherers because they, for such a long period of time, have lived very removed from civilization. So after I graduated from high school in Brazil, I returned to the U.S. for university studies. And for my senior honors thesis, I returned to the Amazon basin and collected translated and analyzed the, a range of myths or legends that the unconverted Yanomamu tell about their own origins. These legends that in truth remind me of the universal human tendency for us all to fabricate and worship gods that I would say are far too small. So two Yanomamu cultural heroes, their names are Omawa and Yoawa, they figure centrally in the myths that the Yanomamu tell, and they're, they're central figures in this pantheon of spirit beings that they believe in. They're demigod brothers, they're supernatural, they're fickle, and they're capricious. They represent or embody this Yanomamu concept that they call waiteri, which is this might-makes-right kind of male dominance. That's the identity structure that really resonates with their sinfulness, and so the Yanomami legends explain how that Omawa and Yoawa, not God, but Omawa and Yoawa created the physical and spiritual features of the life world. The Orinoco and Palamo and Metaconi rivers that they say these two demigod brothers founded the earth upon. The, the Yanomami legends, many of them that describe how jungle and life, plant life, animal life came about. Um, in fact, many of the Yanomami legends, because of the character of these two creator individuals, they're R-rated because they have so much drugs, sex, and violence in them. But in the modeling or the exemplification of these God figures for the Yanomami, they uh, them all these practices of life that they follow after or also emulate. Uh, practices like hunting and foraging, practices like polygamy, so having more than one spouse, including child brides. Practices like, frankly, like rape. Practices like infanticide, the killing of infants when they're born. Practices like sorcery and witchcraft. Uh, ancestor spirit worship and drug uh, use for the purposes of spirit worship. Animal spirit worship. Warfare through using bows and arrows and spears to kill one another. Uh, they even practice a ritual that we call, anthropologists call, endocannibalism which is the consumption of the remains of the dead. So the Yanomami, when a person in their family dies, they take the, the body and burn the body, and then they cremate the bones, they crush them up, and they drink them in this banana drink to remember their own spiritual responsibility and condition, and also to remember to take revenge for the death of the individual that was in their community that they feel responsible to avenge or take revenge for. Now, I know that can sound a bit far removed from Arkansas. Um, I, I concede that. But as I think of the stories of those two brothers, and I, I know we aren't, uh, hopefully, in drinking bones here uh, in our context, although I, I have thought a couple times about those urns of ashes and how I would interact with Yanomami believers as they saw those urns of ashes from cremation. No, guys, this is a unique... Anyway, I'll stop there. I told you I think about life a little differently. But um, we may not do that, but in our common estate as sinful image bearers, we all share God's image, and we often too dimly reflect 
God's image, and specifically in our common depravity, we all think thoughts of God that are too small. In fact, we reduce his grandeur, we reduce his magnificence, and we create spaces in the process that allow us to worship lesser alternatives to him. And so either God occupies his rightful spheres of worship in all of our lives, or else we will substitute depraved self-worship in those spaces. And that's what the Yanomami have done. In fact, Romans 1 talks about that devolution process for all of us. We all, by sinful inclination, exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we all, by sinful inclination, worship the created rather than the creator. We all fabricate gods, demigods, in our hearts that are too petty, they're too human, they're, they're too much on our level, they're not sufficiently transcendent, they're too imminent, they, they, don't, have, they don't possess God's otherness in his essence, they're, they're not definitively worthy of our worship and our reverence. And so, yes, friends, I would say this morning to you that our distorted thoughts about God do produce a bone-drinking idolatry in our affections and in our actions. All of us experience effects of fallenness like that. So as we discuss Psalm 24 today, David encourages us to reset our perspective of this God who is the Lord, the one who is the majestic king. This is a progressive logic that David builds over three stanzas, as psalms are often organized this way. In verses 1 and 2, he describes how the Lord our God is the majestic creator, the majestic creator, the one who physically raises the earth from depths of watery, lifeless chaos, sets the foundations of the earth in order, along with all of the fullness of the earth, all of the inhabitants of the earth. So that's in verses 1 and 2 as we have a majestic creator. And then in verses uh, 3 to 6, we have the Lord our King as a majestic consecrator, as a majestic consecrator, the one who instructs his people in how to worship him alone in holiness as sanctified vessels. And then thirdly, in verses 7 to 10, we have the Lord our King as majestic conqueror, as the one who enters the sacred city to commune with those people in victorious presence as the Lord of armies, the Almighty One. So these three scenes that will track along with the logic of David here, the Lord, our majestic King, presented in these three aspects as creator, as consecrator, and as conqueror. So in verses 1 and 2 here, as we begin... We read one more time, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now in Hebrew poetry, psalmists often organize their thoughts in related parallel lines like this. So we have two sets of parallel statements that describe God as owner in verse 1 because he is the creator in verse 2. So the logic here reads like this, because the Lord created all that exists, that's verse 2, he owns all that exists, that's verse 1. Now our all capitalized word Lord here in verse 1 
is the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh. That's what happens when we capitalize. That's how translators render the word Yahweh, the name of God, that self-existent name of God. Many times in other languages, uh, like Hebrew, authors can reorganize word order for emphasis. So, in fact, in Hebrew, the author has dislocated the word Yahweh and put that first in the sentence. So, he's preceded the passive idea there with the, the name of God. So, the name of God comes first in this verse, this Yahweh name of God. So, it sounds kind of like this, Yahweh's the earth is in all its fullness. And this name Yahweh, in fact, dominates the psalm. It dominates because it appears many times in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 5, twice in verse 8, and again in verse 10. Now, these two first two verses, uh, many theologians have used them to underscore the name of God, that name of God, Yahweh, the self-existent I Am. And I'm going to introduce a term for you this morning that you may not have heard, because God in Latin is the one who exists, ase, of himself. There's a, a doctrine that's significant for us, a, the, a, a theological idea called aseity, or aseity, divine aseity. That's A-S-E-I-T-Y, because I knew you wanted to spell it. And so A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity, which means that of himself characteristic, and it's an attribute of God, of Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, that Omawa and Yoawa don't possess, and no other system in the world of, of uh, theology possesses, but God himself possesses this aseity of God. It's foundational, in fact, to all of our other doctrines of God. R.C. Sproul states regarding this idea that in that one little word, aseity, a word you didn't know before today, right? Didn't know this, but in that one little word, is captured all of the glory of the perfections of God's being. So these first verses in Psalm 24, they interact with Yahweh's aseity, which we will define this way. Let me give you an easy definition as God's uncaused self-existence. His uncaused self-existence. And I'll tell you, as we begin to unpack the, the implications of that in these verses, we could go on for a long time, but let's just focus on a few implications, okay? A few. First, these verses tell us that Yahweh owns, he possesses the earth that he himself created. So therefore, he exists independent from his creation. He exists wholly other from his creation in beauty and worth as a sovereign majesty, as a creator king. He doesn't interact with creation in the same kinds of ways our systems of false worship do. So we in the creation do not compare to him in quantity as if God, uh, as if we possess God's essence, but just in a lesser degree. We don't compare to God like that. No, his essence is his alone to possess of himself. So our fabricated idolatries, our demigods of self-worship, are just uh, quantiless entities. They have no quantity of God's essence at all. That's one reason why we read in the Bible so many times that idols or idolatries that we worship are, are worthless or empty because they possess no quantity of the essence of God, no quantity at all, none. And not only that, but another implication is that they, they don't possess any quality of God's essence either. So false worship is worthless and lifeless because they don't possess a quality of God. 
as if he's just a higher quality version of us, like those Yandamamu beings that we worship. No, his of himself essence, his aseity, means that he is wholly other. He's wholly set apart in quality from all of his creation. We possess no quality of his essence. And so that kind of holy other majestic creator established the world entirely separate from himself. That holy other majestic creator raised the dry land out of the waters. That holy other majestic creator set the earth on foundations that ordered the tempestuous ocean waters. And that holy other majestic creator possesses, he owns the earth he created with all its fruitful fullness. The earth and its inhabitants all belong to him. We belong to him and he sustains all of them. He sustains all of us. No false god that we can fabricate unfounds what this majestic creator founds. No false god that we could fabricate unestablishes what this majestic creator establishes. The best that we can say is that this is his divine right. But that's because he is the divine right. God is every characteristic he possesses. And so through his unique creator, owner, essence, he presumes, he assumes this majestic kingship over the sacred physical order and all of its fullness. And the implication there, both in the fruitful fullness of plant and animal life, but obviously, and I trust you think, that his creator reality stretches to the inhabited fullness of the ends of the earth. In other words, to all peoples everywhere at all times. That God desires to order them all as he relates to them in his uncaused self-existence. So let me ask you this morning a few diagnostic questions then. In what ways do we, like the Yanamamu, shrink that majestic creator down to the size of what I think of as our own culturally circumscribed life worlds? I've traveled in a lot of cultures around the world and I tend to notice cultural environments where we, we circumscribe, we, we create limits for the lives that we live. Uh, the scope, uh, limits of our own self-interested personal spaces. What limited confines do we create within which we demand that God act in and for us according to our own self-worshipping whims? What areas of our lives do we clutch onto as our own domains, as our own creator work for ourselves, and in the process we drink bones of death? God can have these arenas in my life, but not these. Friends, only God exists, I say, of himself. As his own uncaused self-existence, he is the divine right. He is the only one, the majestic creator, who without apology tells us who and what and where and when and why and how we can exist in his world. Secondly, though, how do we constrain him as majestic creator through the ways that we relate to others around us, other image bearers? Per one author, we see people as more powerful and significant than God, And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to think, feel, and do. Don't we often tend to function that way? Instead, 
How might we proactively look up to the majestic creator as the one who, he owns all of those relational spaces that we exist in. And so he places us strategically in relationships for the good of others. Not that we can fear other of his image bearers in idolatry, but that together we can learn to fear him. And in the process, then God does that work of giving life to us as he builds into others around us and he builds into us through that one another responsibility that the majestic creator himself owns and has delegated to us. Thirdly, what, what about our investments in the church? And you may say, well, how did the church get into this? Well, we think about God as the creator who created all the institutions that he established along with creation, the family and the church. And if so, are we really in submission to this institutional structure that God established? Or do we rebel against the authority of the church and our participation in service If that's the case, then we're rebelling against that creator, against his authority, because after all, as I said, he founded the church through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, made Christ the head, and he ordained that we live within that structure. Here's a question for you these days in our cultural environment, in this kind of world we live in, even in Arkansas. Do we believe that the body of Christ is one of the most profoundly significant culture and identity-forming structures of our lives? Do we believe that? Do we live and participate as if the church exists as one of the most profoundly significant identity and culture-forming structures of our lives? Or is the church another personal creative domain where we express our own individualism, where we dabble in creating and recreating ourselves in our own false images, where we pilot test our own strategies, our best strategies for managing our own self-images. Finally, how does the fact of Yahweh the King as majestic creator impact how we relate to his world? As one author says, since we embody God's care and control over creation, we are not to be ruled by creation Anytime we are enslaved by some element of creation, sex, food, power, work, relationship, riches, we are experiencing an effect of the fall into sin and death. So yes, friends, enslavement to an aspect of creation is, again, it's bone-drinking kind of idolatry for the Yandamamu and for us. Secondly, then, let's move forward as we look past verses 1 and 2, if there we see Yahweh as majestic creator, in verses 3 to 6, psalmist here, David, presents him, secondly, as majestic consecrator. Majestic consecrator. Now, this is a logical move that I see people groups around the world intuitively make because they know, even the Yandamamu know, that in relationship to their own demigods, they have to be aligned with those most powerful beings that they have conceived of, even when, and this is the case with our false worship, even when those beings are fabricated and highly morally deficient. And if Yahweh our king, as the psalmist says here, is the majestic creator, owner, sustainer of our physical reality, as in verses 1 and 2, 
then, then he must also dis- dictate the terms of our spiritual reality. So moral consecration, what does that mean for human beings? If a God like that, an Ase kind of God, exists, then he dictates terms both physically and spiritually for us. Don't forget, he's the uncaused, self-existent, divine right who, whose own legitimacy, his own existence, establishes both the physical order and, by implication, all of the spiritual reality around us. Because all that this majestic king establishes, by definition of who he is, he establishes in consecration with reference to himself alone. So unlike false gods, no aspect of his moral being mingles with or is contaminated by sinfulness in creation. No, he is uncaused self-existence. He is set-apartness. He is holiness. He is sacredness. He is consecration. He alone is the very essence of moral authority in every attribute that he possesses. Now, it's important for us to recognize here, and you can see this with me, that verses 3 to 6 presume a critical dilemma. People around the world recognize this problem. Do you see it here? Verses 3 to 6. The dilemma is the broken state of humankind. If Yahweh the king is the majestic creator, the psalmist asks a logical question in light of fallenness. How can sinful human beings approach him? He says in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place. So if the inhabitants of Israel, think back with me, if the inhabitants of Israel and the nations wanted to approach this, this mountain to physically ascend Mount Zion, the set-apart mountain of God, the place of the tabernacle, the place of God's presence, how would they do that? How would they qualify morally to do that? If we figuratively want to approach the presence of God to stand before him, how do we qualify to do that? Well, the psalmist contributes two related answers in these verses, both of which establish the fact that Yahweh is the majestic consecrator. Now, I'm going to ask you to stay with me here. Okay, stay with me. Stay with me. First, verse 4 explains the moral requirements for those who would approach him. Verse 4, moral requirements. Verse 5 explains... His gracious work on behalf of those who would approach him. Okay? So verse 4, in this idea of majestic consecration or consecrator, the moral requirements in verse 4, the gracious work that he performs in verse 5. First verse 4 presents those moral requirements for human consecration. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Four characteristics here. I know this is a lot to think about in a short amount of time, but four characteristics here. Two of which are horizontal characteristics, moral requirements, horizontal with one another. Two of which are vertical characteristics, characteristics that lift our eyes up to God. So the first characteristic is this idea of clean hands, which represents this guilelessness, this innocence or integrity in our actions toward others around us. 
saw um, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15 contrasts those clean hands with the description of hands stretched out in prayer, but the hands are, are full of blood. And the ones who would dare to stretch out their hands in prayer and really be harboring all kinds of wretched and wicked work in the way that they interact with their fellow image bearers. And then the second horizontal moral requirement here is this pure-heartedness, this willingness to give selflessly to others around us, either in generous self-sacrifice or in self-serving ambition. So those two horizontal reference points, that that pure-heartedness and that cleanliness of hands in the way that we act to, towards others. And then we have two vertical references which help to guide those horizontal references. Lifted up souls, that third connection there, has to do with the, that which our affections, our, our abiding assurances worship. What, that which we, we uh, lift our souls up to. And then this concept of deceitful swearing, the fourth of these characteristics, the second of which of this vertical idea has to do with that which our our hearts pledge allegiance to in commitments of worship. And so we have those horizontal and vertical references that are describing these moral requirements that God has of his people. Let me just summarize for you because I, as I said, I know that's a lot to take in. But those four requirements presume that this majestic consecrator sits on a throne in a place of divine kingship and that he declares or dictates the terms of the sacred moral order in every aspect of how human beings relate to him and others. He dictates all the terms. That he is the one who, who describes every facet of how human beings both outwardly and inwardly relate to him and to one another. Secondly, though... Secondly, though, in verse 5, we see that Yahweh himself must do the grace work. So if he's issued moral requirements for us, he himself must do the grace work. It's his gracious work. Verse 5 says, he will receive blessing from the Lord, the one who performs in this kind of way, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So Yahweh himself, this majestic consecrator, must decide if and how human beings become sufficiently sacred or consecrated to him in those requirements. He must confirm human set-apartness. He must consecrate us in keeping with his status, his otherness, through the gracious work of purification that he alone can perform. That's why here in verse 5 it describes that Yahweh is the one who's giving the blessing, the capital name Lord. Yahweh is the one who gives righteousness or vindication. He's the only one sufficient of himself as the God of salvation to rescue, to save, to vindicate, to deliver, to bless. And these are acts of grace from him. He alone gives blessing, vindication, and righteousness to us. So let me ask you, have you been declared righteous? Have you been, are you one who would be named among the vindicated? The ones that the Lord has blessed as majestic consecrator. Now, we'll toggle over in mind to Colossians chapter 1 to see Christ as a fulfillment of that process. And realize that the Bible makes it very clear that the only way we can be vindicated is that 
God, Yahweh, has to do that work through, for us through, the, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide blessing and vindication. And so I ask you, thinking back to that image in verse 1 of God raising the earth from watery lifelessness, has God done that work in you through Christ? Have you trusted in the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to save you from your sin? Has Christ placed your feet on firm ground in himself because you've trusted in him? Remember those words from Colossians 1. Christ is, in fact, the co-creator. He's the one through whom God created all things. He's the reconciler. He's the one through whom God worked out that kind of consecration. So have you trusted him? And then those of us who are believers, who profess to be believers, I challenge us to search our souls. Uh, I, even as we profess to be in Christ, what kinds of habits of idolatrous impurity and selfish inclination still too frequently mark our hands and hearts? I, I was thinking about this this morning. In what ways am I, are you staining your own hands with blood? in the ways that we think and act towards other image bearers around us. The, the blood enslavement that exposes our own selfishness, our own fallenness, and exposes our misplaced loyalties to God, that makes us reticent. Do you ever feel that reticence to lift and open your hands to the accountability of God's kingship because of the blood staining of idolatry on your hands? Do we know that Yahweh the King has full authority do we give him his rightful place to have full authority to make us sacred, to consecrate us, no matter what the process and the pain? Or have we only given him the right to perform certain acts of consecration on our behalf, uh, certain acts of transformation? Are we seeking to manage? I'm a good manager. Some people would at times call me a micromanager. Um, I won't ask my wife, and I'd ask you not to as well. But are we seeking to manage his consecrating work? Do we relegate him to these safe zones in our lives where we let him operate? Or are we wholly committed to the work of the majestic consecrator, allowing him to purify our hearts, to, to clarify the devotion of our souls, to establish the integrity of our words, to cleanse the work of our hands? such that we do indeed become more like the Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, those are they're weighty questions, because if Yahweh the King is our majestic creator, then through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he must have his rightful place as our majestic consecrator as well. And Yes, in our once-for-all salvation, of course, but also in our union with Christ, we're daily submitted through faith and repentance to the purifying work that he's doing in our lives. Verse 6 underscores that. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We're that chosen generation. May we function as a chosen generation, a set-apart people of God who seek his approval in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly and finally, with all that we've discussed in these first two stanzas, with Christ as creator and as consecrator, if Yahweh the king rules over his people in this kind of way, then we should logically and gratefully receive and bow to him as a conqueror, as a majestic conqueror. And that's what verses 7 through 10 talk about. They say this, lift up your head, O gates, 
and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift him up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Here the psalmist is calling up this mental image for us. Find the picture with me. I've been to Jerusalem a couple times. There are remnants of the ancient walls there. 20 to 30 feet feet high and 8 to 10 feet thick. These massive walls that safeguarded the holy city from the enemy. And that makes for the need for very ancient and massive entry doors, don't you think? Those kinds of walls need large, massive doors. And so those covenant-guarding gates, those ancient standards of protection for the people of God, are now hearing the approach of this armed multitude with a king. And so the, the armed multitude calls out to the gates, calls out to the gates twice for them to open. Lift up your heads, O you gates, the armed multitude says. And the gatekeepers are responding by asking the armed multitude to confirm the value or the worth of the one who's entering. So they, they, they respond by asking, who is the king of glory? Or who is this majestic king who deserves entry? Now, by now, I trust that both the singers of the psalm and we know the identity of this majestic conqueror. I trust we are now aware that he has, is one who possesses matchless and infinite worth. Yes, we know the worth of Christ the King who approaches. He alone deserves entry. And so Yahweh's faithful followers respond to the gatekeepers. In verse 8, they, the approaching victor, they say, is none other than Yahweh the king, the strong and mighty one, the majestic conqueror. In verse 10, they say that Yahweh, the approaching victor, is none other than Yahweh the king, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Yahweh of the innumerable armed hosts of heaven. Yahweh of heaven's armies, the self-existent king, majestic conqueror and commander of more mighty armies than any of the armies of the earth could ever conceive of. He's the one who's approaching the gates. And so before his essence alone, ancient immovable citadel gates gratefully open. Before his essence alone, they lift their heads in reverence to him. Before Christ's name alone, the impenetrable barriers of human hearts open to his conquering work. As the majestic king, he alone conquers. He alone delivers. He alone vindicates. He alone saves. And so let me ask you, if Yahweh the king reigns in our lives as majestic creator and consecrator, do we gratefully bow to him because of his continuous victorious work on our behalf as majestic conqueror? Do we joyfully receive him in the fortress doors of our hearts, our souls praising him for opening all entryways and pathways to his consecrating holiness through the Lord Jesus Christ, to do his sure and final victories for us over sin, death, and Satan, as one commentator says on this psalm, do they stir us up in a battle cry for the church? We serve under the glorious banner of Yahweh the King, the majestic conqueror, who has won every victory for us in Christ. No other loyalties or allegiances could possibly 
compare to that privilege of service. So I challenge you this morning, open the gates of your heart to adore him, to follow hard after him. I've served, cross-cultural church planners serve in the hardest ways and the hardest places. And I'm telling you that what we pursue is the gospel narrative of purpose that God has for this world. That's what we pursue. All of us are in responsibility to pursue that, that he's at work to consecrate this world in the fullness of the inhabitants therein, his salvation to the ends of the earth, and all of that comes through the ultimate kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. When um, Bible translators in minority languages like Yanomamu or Ata work through the Old Testament, we often encounter and wrestle with what we call key spiritual terms. Um, often we can't easily find synonyms for these kinds of terms in other languages, and um, they, yet these terms are significant, like, for example, the many names of God in the Old Testament. Uh, the name Yahweh as one example. And, and one author encourages us as we think about God's aseity that these names of God are important for, as key spiritual terms because they are the most direct revelation that God has given us that we might have a true knowledge of him and that's found in his names. And in each case then the Bible translator has to determine the core of meaning of that particular term and then render that core of meaning faithfully into that minority group language, which isn't always the easiest process. But for example, in the Atta language, where we worked in Papua New Guinea, uh, Yahweh, just the simple name Yahweh, which seems simple enough to us, uh, the Lord in all caps, is rendered in Atta as Mosinga Nukaluhuasi, which means God, our owner, the eternal one who has no beginning or end. So just in the book of Genesis, just listen, track with me for a second. We're almost finished. Track with me for a second here. Just in the book of Genesis alone, we encounter many of the names of God as such key spiritual terms. Let's think about his aseity together as you hear me rattle off some of these. Listen to these and marvel at God's of himself essence. In Genesis 1-1, we first encounter Elohim, the all-powerful creator. In, in Genesis 2-4, we find Yahweh, the self-existent one. J Yahweh Elohim, the all-powerful and self-existent creator in 3-24. El Elyon, the most high God in 14-18. Adonai, the master in 15-2. El Shaddai, the almighty and all-sufficient God in 17-1. El Roy, the living God who sees in 16-13. Shaphat, the judge in 18-25. El Olam, the eternal God in 21-22. Yahweh Jireh, the self-existent provider in 22-14. Ra, the shepherd in 49-15. Up here, the mighty one in 4924, Eben the stone in 4925, that's just in the book of Genesis. And other names beyond Genesis, like the eternal and everlasting God, God with us, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord our banner, the Lord who heals, the Lord our peace, the Lord our companion, the Lord our righteousness. All of those names illustrate facets of Yahweh's comprehensive character in his aseity his uncaused self-existence, in his unity, his simplicity, in his transcendence and his eminence. When we hear them, we of course should think about the person of Jesus Christ. We of course should think 
about the one who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords to whom every knee must bow. At one point in the history of the Reformation, Martin Luther was debating an opponent, the humanist Erasmus, and uh, in writing. And like many of the Catholics of his day, Erasmus was concerned that some of the diverse characteristics of God would not prove sensible and thus valuable in the sight and hearing of common people. Maybe, maybe common people like the Yanomamu or the Atta or maybe like us. Maybe they're just too sophisticated for us. And Luther wrote to object. He said, your thoughts of God are all too human. Friends, let's carefully reflect. Like the Yanomama, we humanize God in our thoughts, feelings, and affections, actions toward him. We fabricate gods that rule over us in the process. We've got to guard ourselves against this. Our defective and fallen human imaginations that are impacted by self-deception will create heart idolatries inevitably that compete with God and that reduce him to just a demigod that is a self-worshipping process like those of the Yanomamu. And listen to the, here's the way the Yanomamu interact with those demigods. They, They manipulate them. They control them, they manage them, they appease them, they hide from them. They even expect to deceive them with whatever degree of self-righteousness they can muster. And that's us. What's convenient for our self-images? What produces those alternate gods in us that occupy the rightful domain of Yahweh, the king, that shrink him down to the size of sanitized and perhaps idealized versions of us? We can't afford to make Yahweh the King and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit just other cultural iterations, other cultural heroes. We can't do that. Because if we do, we fall prey to a destructive, bone-drinking idolatry that we fail to think and feel and act and worship of the Trinitarian God of the Bible as transcendent Lord, the majestic King, Creator, consecrator and conqueror let's close this morning by reading this wonderful description of God that was written in the early 1600s by a man whose name I don't know how to pronounce in English his name is Guglielmus Bucanus if you know that in English you can let me know later but he wrote in the 1600s and he was giving us these marvelously insightful words that he and he very carefully describes God without defining him, describes him without defining him, and he himself explains why. But listen to this. I was very much encouraged by this short, relatively short description of God. Listen to this. God is an essence, spiritual, incomprehensible, almighty, immortal, infinite, love itself, mercy itself, justice itself, holiness itself, purity itself, goodness itself, wisdom itself, long-suffering itself, and bountifulness itself, which is the Father who from all eternity begat the Son, co-eternal with himself, and of the same substance with the Father, and the Son not made nor created, but begotten of the Father from all eternity." And the Holy Spirit proceeding from them both, the Father and the Son, the creator and conserver of all things, the redeemer and sanctifier of the elect. And then he says, which is no definition, 
For he that is supersubstantial and incomprehensible cannot be defined. But such a description as sufficiently contains all such things as in this life are necessary for us to know for the service of God and for our salvation. Does not writing like that, number one, stir our souls and also create an abiding humility in us? Does it not? Because he is Yahweh the king. He's the creator. He's the consecrator. He's the conqueror. In Christ, he establishes of himself alone all order in creation, all order in consecration, and all order in the conquest of every foe. Let's pray together. Father, we... I trust, um, feel incredibly humbled by the majestic nature of your kingship. We feel insignificant and foolish and futile many times, and yet we know that you've preserved us in Christ. You've placed us in his creator work. You've placed us in his consecrating work. You've placed us in his conquering work, and so we can follow after him in the gospel narrative that you have for this world, for the gospel to be proclaimed in our own spheres of influences as we de- you delegate responsibility like that to us and then in turn for us to proclaim it elsewhere. We're just thankful for the privilege that we have to serve under your banner. And we pray that we'll take that privilege seriously today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond by singing, Behold. Thank you.